I always emphasize that knowledge is incomplete, but we're learning that these medications don't work for persistent pain at all well. They only work short term in some people. And the miracle is here that when you actually see the changes in people, when they're coming off the medication, it is uh, phenomenal. Uh, we see it at every group program. During the four-week program, people coming off gabapentin, tramadol, codeine, some of the stronger opioids, um, their lights come on. They can think straight. Other people in the program say, gosh, they look so much younger. They, they, their eyes are brighter. They've got colour back in their cheeks again. They've, and their cognitive function improves. And, but the common so-called painkillers, and that's another reframe we put in, we stop calling them painkillers because they don't kill pain, they kill the person. <laughs> As we know in the United States and, and increasingly in the United Kingdom. What would you call them instead of painkillers? Analgesics to ease, ease pain and improve comfort. And if they're not doing that, then don't take them. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another Human Givens podcast. I'm Julia Wellstead and I'm part of the HG team. Now today I'm going to be asking our expert Dr Graham Brown, can chronic pain be reduced without medication? Graham began his medical practice whilst in the RAF and then moved on to pursue a career in GP general practice with a specialist interest in sport and exercise medicine and occupational health. Now, subsequently, he uh, joined our consultant surgical team at the Royal Orthopaedic Hospital, that's the NHS Trust in Birmingham, and he was a specialist physician in musculoskeletal sport and exercise medicine there. And Graham's also honorary senior clinical lecturer at the Institute of Occupational and Environmental Medicine, also at the University of Birmingham. And he tutors courses there in work-related musculoskeletal issues, including occupational rehab. Mm -hmm. uh, now, Graham also teaches the Human Givens Effective Pain Management course and is co-author with Denise Swin of How to Liberate Yourself from Pain. Uh, that's published by Human Givens Publishing, and there'll be a link with this podcast to that book. Uh, now, that's a book I've actually found hugely useful with many clients, so thanks to the two of them for writing that one. And Graham's also co-authored uh, Back to Life, with David Rogers, which I'm sure he'll mention as well. And that was published in 2016. And gosh, this list just goes on, Graham. He's also author of the chapter on pain management in the Oxford textbook of musculoskeletal medicine, which was published in 2015. So my goodness, Graham, um, hello, are you there? Yes, thank you very much for that introduction. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us today. You're, you're definitely the expert on pain management and all things musculoskeletal by the sound of it. Um, and I, I have to say, I came on your pain management course ooh, a number of years ago, and it was a real eye-opener with pain gates and circuits and so on. But of course, I'll let you explain those details. Um, but I think this is such an important topic. I think an estimated 25 to 40% of our population suffers persistent or chronic pain. Is that correct? Something uh, indeed, those are current estimates and uh, either persistent or persistent recurring problems. And yeah. now officially, chronic low back pain is the largest and biggest cause of uh, disability worldwide. Wow. And so debilitating. I have indeed, yes. suffered that myself, so I know what that's It doesn't kill people, but it kills their life. Good way of putting it, yes. <laughs> well, look, we've got a lot of questions, uh, Graham, mm. but perhaps... Would you mind starting by telling us a bit more about your work and maybe how you apply the human givens approach within it? Indeed, yes. I've, um, I say I've always had an interest in uh, combining physical activity with um, behavioural and psychological medicine, uh, both as a GP and then as a specialist. Part of my work, I trained in various intervention treatments, including all the injections, osteopathy, medical acupuncture. And I wanted to improve my communication skills and brief psychological therapy skills. So I did the Human Givens Diploma course many years ago. And that was the most meaningful and useful course uh, that I've done as a postgraduate doctor. And I've been qualified 40 years now, so I recommend it to anybody. Um, and I continue to build on those skills. So it's made a huge difference to the way I communicate and understand some of the basic neuroscience. And uh, I've been through phases and I've been through the various waves of treating various musculoskeletal conditions and looking at the evidence growing and seeing what works best. And I've actually come full circle. I've stopped doing uh, intervention treatments myself now. I've stopped doing injections for anybody with chronic or persistent pain. There are some roles for it, but I've stopped doing them. Um, I stopped offering patients um, acupuncture on a more routine basis a number of years ago because I'm getting much better outcomes now with a confident combined psychological and physical activity treatment approach, which is 
where the current research evidence is going, the NICE guidelines, National Institute of Care and Clinical Excellence in the UK, uh, recommend that this type of treatment, that's combined psychological, behavioural and physical activity treatment, be offered to people with persistent back pain sciatica, where there's no obvious cause that might need, uh, for example, surgical treatment, which generally is needles in haystacks, um, because it's very uncommon in most people to see any clear and obvious indication for surgical invasive treatment in common problems like back pain, sciatica. There are a few exceptions clearly and that's why a medical, a competent medical assessment is essential when anybody is in these sort of pain problems. Of course, yes, but I'm very interested to hear that NICE are recommending, so from what you're saying, talk therapy and exercise. Yes, indeed, their phrase is combined psychological and physical activities, rather clumsy. Um, we've translated that in the Royal Orthopaedic uh, Programme that we developed uh, eight years ago with the clinical commissioners and uh, we call it the Functional Restoration Programme. The medical model is that once pain gets established, there's nothing you can do about it. You've just got to learn to put up with it and learn some coping skills. And um, I've never felt very comfortable with that at all because uh, I firmly believe that with the right approach and when a person is ready, their pain can be turned down and they can have a much better quality of life. It's basically a medical model problem again because chronic pain does not respond to conventional medical treatments such as drugs, injections and surgery. At all well, it may be temporary improvement, but it usually doesn't last and it's so dispiriting for the clinicians and for the individual person, of course, experiencing pain and so demoralising. And so often the more failed treatments that a patient has with chronic pain, the further down the slippery slope of despair and demoralisation they slide. That's part of the challenge of helping people to hook people out of this terrible slide. But it's not always possible because some people no. have gone far too far down. And but that is what I remember about the sort of pain yeah. gates and circuits and so on that it open and close and switch on and off, which I'm hoping you might um, remind yes. how that all works. Yes, it, it's, it's, it really has, it's certainly my career as a doctor, there's been a, there's been a paradigm shift in our understanding of pain biology. Knowledge is incomplete, of course, and it's such a complex area and is growing, but it's really the neuroscience um, brigade. And again, we've come across this with our human givens training. You know, basic neuroscience, it's there and the work has been done and is being done. And um, much of the drive of this was the, the desire to try and understand better the conundrum of phantom limb pain, which has been known for centuries but defied logical explanation based on the medical model that Descartes put forward for nearly four centuries ago. So that, just to be clear to people, that's pain in a limb that you no longer have. That's right, yes, yes. And this has been a conundrum that's exercised the minds of scientists and so on. And now we know, and this is absolutely key fundamental point, is that all, all pain is an output from the brain. It's not an input into the brain, it's an output from the brain. And so I have this conversation with patients when they're ready to understand a little bit uh, deeper and it's most important you see because nature has given us a danger alert system in the tissues and that's called nociception nociception i think is from greek to a danger alert so we've got free nerve endings sitting in the tissues just uh, kicking off messages to the spinal cord all the time pressure changes temperature changes movement changes and you know millions and millions of messages coming in every in every instant and um, most of it is, of course, just, just controlled at the spinal cord and not allowed through to the higher brain. Uh, but if the volley of messages starts um, getting stronger, for example, the temperature change is getting stronger or the pressure change is getting stronger or there's inflammatory or chemical changes, then these nerve endings start to fire more rapidly and they will um, jump and excite the danger alert neuron in the spinal cord that then fires up into the brain and starts to alert the brain. And we know from our human givens training in neuroscience that all sensory information into the brain is processed through the thalamus, through the amygdala, like the gatekeeper for danger, pattern matching to danger. And then the messages are transferred all around the brain. So the brain has to make sense of all of this messaging and it has to go into to the frontal lobes. You know, where are we? Who am I? What are my values? It has to go into the cerebellum and you know, what are we doing? What's the movement pattern? It has to go into our memory bank, into the hippocampus. Have we been here before? Do we, do we recognize this pattern? Uh, was it dangerous? Was it threatening? And so on. So it's an immensely complex and instantaneous processing going on in the brain when the nociceptive input traffic is coming up. So the brain has to make sense of this all of this uh, traffic coming in. And the key understanding here that has revolutionized um, certainly my working with patients with pain is that when the brain computes in its wisdom, 
given the vast amount of knowledge available to the brain, when it computes that there's sufficient information to be a threat, potentially to survival, then the brain produces pain. So it's the brain's protective response. So it's producing that pain to tell us. At that point, we become conscious of it. Exactly. I repeat this because it is such an important uh, reframe. We know from our training in human givens how important reframes are. It's a protector because so many patients, the message they're getting from what they read and what they understand, uh, maybe from the media, maybe from articles, maybe many, many sadly from healthcare professionals themselves, the language used to describe the t- state of the tissues, perhaps a spinal MRI scan with damaged discs and arthritis here and arthritis there and trapped nerves and all of this, it generates fear and it generates the threat. And so the brain is constantly getting threat messages and so associating threatening messages and increases the uh, pain response. So knowing that pain, reframing pain as a protector, the phrase I often use and many patients really understand this very quickly, that part of your brain that's taken millions of years to evolve knows how to protect you. And it's not your thinking brain, it's your automatic brain. And it's protecting you by producing pain. And it produces pain in a number of complex ways. To keep it simple, it increases the gain control of all sensory information coming in because there's a threat. Fight, flight, freeze, many people are familiar with that response. Yeah. So everything is turned up louder. All sensory information coming from that region of the body where the messages are coming from is amplified. So it's like a, an amplification switch on a radio or a hi-fi system. So everything is brighter and louder. And we can map this in the brain with functional MRI scanning. Everything is louder and brighter. And because there's a threat and a protective response is needed, the brain through the fight, flight, freeze system, adrenaline, noradrenaline, and then the cortisol system, then produces tension. And the output is tension in the muscles to protect, to brace. And um, all animals have this response, of course. Some will run from danger and some will freeze and it's behavioral observation in humans that when they're threatened with danger maybe a sudden pull in the spine or they twisting somewhere they're twisting and they feel a pull in their back and a sudden ah you know my back's gone again they're not going to run away they're not going to go for a run up the stairs 20 times they're going to freeze on the spot so when you observe people and myself included when that's happened to me we tend to freeze it's our instinctive response to freeze Yes, to try and sort of minimise any further yes, damage. Exactly. Yes, and so that, that, that freeze is the, and the locking going on is intense muscle cramp being generated by the fight flight freeze system. And it is a phenomenal cramp. Scientists can measure it, the torque in the muscles, the spinal muscles, and the phenomenal strength. And this is the common back strain. We're not talking about somebody who's perhaps fallen off a roof and fallen 20 feet and can't move and maybe that's a fracture dislocation and that clearly needs a different type of management what we're talking about here is and it still produces pain but it may not be in pain of course there's plenty of evidence that (laughs) knowledge and research that you can have acute injury on in trauma and not feel any pain until later Uh, so so it's the brain's response again Um, so it's that muscle tension that really builds up and is so devastating so that's fundamentally what the, the pain response is there for. It's a protector to alert us to actual or potential tissue damage to force us to change behavior. We need to change behavior because our survival may be at stake. And it's a survival response. Our survival may be at stake. So we need to change our behavior. We need to be anxious. It generates anxiety. It generates fear. It has to. In order that we behave accordingly. Yes, to change our behavior. And um, you know, if we're just standing, say, distracted, an example I often use in our, in our workshop with patients on the program, if you're standing there in the, in the kitchen, you may be cooking somewhere, you've got a hot plate on and you're just stirring something and you're distracted by you trying to talk on the telephone. Perhaps you've got your mobile in your hand and you're talking to your, your, your friend and you're getting engrossed in a conversation and you're really not noticing what your left hand is doing and the left hand just comes off the pan and touches the red hot plate. Is it right? What's more important for your survival to carry on talking to your friend or to get your hand off that plate? Well, the answer is obvious. And that's why we need a really effective pain response. It needs to alert us to go to a place of safety instantly and change our behavior, withdraw, protect. Absolutely, yes. That makes sense then, doesn't it? So, So that's why it has an emotional component. It's not like hearing or sight. It has an emotional component. It's not an, it's not an added extra. It is a sensory, unpleasant sensory and a fear response. It has to have that. So that's reframing the meaning of pain. And that is really helpful for patients. Yes. And you know, I had a conversation with a patient just a few days ago in clinic. In fact, it was only yesterday. 
and he's, um, he's, he's, he's had some irritation of the sciatic nerve and uh, he was pretty sore for a couple of weeks. Uh, he could hardly move and he's beginning to settle down as we'd expect now and about six weeks after the initial onset, he's about 70-80% better. So I had a conversation with him that, that pain was really important because that nerve needs protecting. It was under pressure, it wasn't damaged, but you don't want to carry on normal because um, your survival is at stake. You may get left behind by the tribe and be meat for the predator um, from our evolutionary biology. Yes. And you know, it's useful, you don't ignore it, you cannot ignore it. But actually as the tissue heals, the pain subsides and allows you to get going and the brain is allowing you to get going as the tissue is repairing and the state of tissue is allowing you to get moving because movement helps recovery. And he's recovering and will do well. So that's a really good example of acute pain. Yes. Uh, where um, we actually need it in the right amount at the right time. That's right. Yes. <laughs> um, for a very good reason. And it's not to be suppressed or ignored or, or blotted out or take maxing out with so-called pain-killing tablets. Uh, and fear, fearful of it, it's actually a useful and protective response. And when we understand that, it takes a lot of the fear out of the pain. And even in the acute phase, if you can reframe the meaning of pain, it certainly takes a lot of the threat out of it. And therefore, the brain turns the volume down. I actually have a great example of that in that I fell off a horse and broke mm. my lumbar vertebra too. It was three weeks in hospital having to stay completely still. And then I was put into a brace and packed off home. But the consultant said, be guided by your pain. And I just thought that was brilliant because I stopped taking any painkillers. I thought, right, well, if I've got to be guided by the pain, I want to know it. And it really helped. I gradually increased my ability to sort of totter along the road and back and things like that, being guided by my pain. And, and I, for me, that was a very short thing for him to say to me. And that's what we all expect to happen. And that's, of course, the model of acute pain. And um, by and large, almost all medications available over the counter to take for pain relief and doctors can prescribe for pain relief or inject will modify and reduce acute phase pain. Uh, morphine is the strongest and is dramatic. Gosh, uh, obviously I was put on that first off and yeah. that was fantastic. Uh, you know, in, in acute phase pain, it always works. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, and right and proper um, in the right circumstances. Now, the, the paradigm shift change here in, in our understanding is the way I was brought up to understand persistent pain and the model was the medical model. And it's still taught and it's still because the people who were brought up that way are teaching our medical students. So this model still prevails and will take probably a generation to disappear. But, you know, chronic pain, that means persistent way after normal tissue damage is, is expected to heal, usually by three to six months, is basically the same as acute pain. You've just got to look for the source of the tissue damage and keep on looking for it. And ultimately, you'll find something to treat in the tissues. And of course, this leads to the devastating uh, cycle of excessive numbers of investigations and healthcare professionals finding something, which are so often incidental findings, or just as common in people without symptoms. Yes. Especially common in the spine with um, modern imaging techniques, like MRI. And of course, healthcare professionals are trained to try and be helpful, and they want to be helpful, and they want to see their patients uh, get some relief of pain. And so... You put two and two together and it's easy to say, well, that, blame that disc that's bulging or that. It must be that. It must be. Let's take it out. Let's cut it. Let's burn it. Let's do whatever we can to it. And for the best of intentions, those treatments have been tried for 60 or 70 years for people with back pain and uh, they don't work. <laughs> um, the evidence yeah. is that those disc bulges are just as common in people without any pain as with pain. So it's led to this constant searching for the tissue that's at fault. And that we, the, the paradigm shift here is, is that chronic pain is essentially the brain's protective response that is still continuing to operate. It hasn't been turned down. It's still continuing to operate. It's outlived its usefulness in, term, in terms of being protective. Yes. And the, the next key level of understanding here is, is that we learned this in our human givens training, is the plasticity of the central nervous system, that's the brain and the spinal cord, it learns. And the key message here is, is the brain learns to produce pain. If it produces pain and the circuits are kept strong and firing, they get stronger like a muscle that's being used. So it lays the brain and central nervous system to lay, lay down many more neural connections in the network capable of producing that pain response, turning up the amplification system, keeping the muscle tension going. And so the circuits get multiplied and the neural circuits get stronger and stronger because they're being used. It's just the same as learning 
craft or hobby or any other skill, the more you practice it, the stronger you get at it. Yes. Until it becomes automatic. So this is the big shift in understanding. Chronic pain is where the nervous system has, has adapted by continuing to produce pain as a protective response when it's outlived its usefulness. And the neural circuitry is continually being rehearsed. And the more those circuits are used, the stronger they get. And that's where your techniques, the human givens approach of talking that through and educating, learning about that can help then to find ways to dial it down. Yes, yes, indeed, because then you come back to, well, as a clinician and more perhaps as an individual who may be at a stage that they can ask this question of themselves, you can only work at this level when you, people have calmed down sufficient to what we call in human givens model and uh, use their observing self. Because if they're totally absorbed in the emotional distress with their pain, you cannot help them to understand and look objectively at what, what's going on. They need calming down. And we see this, of course, in other areas of human distress. You can't, you can't think straight until you calm down your arousal state. But with good communication and listening skills and reflective listening, I can often make a huge amount of progress, even in a 30-minute consultation. And people calm down once they feel understood and you are actually helping them to understand or have some understanding of what's going on. That's massively helpful. And then you start to look at, well, why is the brain continuing to produce the protective response? Where are all the threats coming from? Because the brain is only doing what it's evolved to do, is to protect. And when the brain is perceiving uh, there's more threat than safety messages, it will continue to produce pain. So the aim of the intervention as a clinician then is to reduce as far as you can all the, the threats. And then I work and I train with my clinical colleagues to focus on those drivers that are clinically modifiable because there are drivers for maintaining pain that we can't change, um, perhaps social or cultural, for example. And no matter how good a therapist you are, no matter how good your program is or how motivated you are as a clinician, if people are being stuck in a pain, disability, vicious cycle and they, mm. can't, they can't get out of it because they can't afford to, perhaps, it would mean having to lose entitlement to benefits, for example, then they're caught in a bind and no amount of clinical skill will, will likely change that because the brain is going to weigh up that they're better off where they are than the threats that they don't know. Yes. <laughs> it's all coming down to weighing up the threats. Yes, yes, that's <laughs> very, yeah. It's a conscious construct in most people. It, mm-hmm. it, it's the brain's weighing up the threats and which are the least threatening such scenarios and which are the mo- more scenario threatening. So by far the most common threatening scenario is the language used in healthcare professionals, in the literature. You know, the, I've given some examples of that just in the spinal problems like crushed discs and trapped nerves and yes. degenerative joints and worn out. And that's all threatening. And so you start to reframe with, yes, these are, these are typical for anybody of your age, these changes, if they are, and most, mostly they are. It's life, they're adaptive changes. The tissues adapt to the loads they're put under, and those are normal changes. And they can create a few problems here and there, but by and large, you can live with them. And that's a positive reframe. So you start to change your language to reduce the threat. And of course, then uh, you look at the threats. For example, what a person is missing, what needs are not being met, the need for... Um, being stretched in their work, for example. So if pain is threatening to take them off work or lose their job or lose their involvement in sport, and maybe a person's identity, for example, is very closely tied up with their prowess in sport. And if they go down with um, injury, it very quickly can become an extremely threatening situation because their whole life then can be barreling out of control. And of course, then from a human givens perspective, you can see how many needs are not being met especially when a lot of needs are being met by that. By one thing, yes. I'm, I'm just remembering someone who was a fantastic violinist and, you know, went to a great music school. So there were, this was as a, as a school-aged child. So there was a lot of pressure on her to become a top violinist and she got repetitive strain injury in her wrist. And so that completely, she, she had to sort of completely rethink her life. And I think her parents probably also had to back off this great ambition Exactly. So, so when you look at that that young person's situation from a biopsychosocial approach and from a human givens model as well, it's you can see the number of needs that are being met by her career aspiration, which are threatened. So, and then more threatening messages, perhaps from well-intended parents, and so on, and it all adds up, and that uh, is going to tip the brain into producing uh, pain to protect because it's such a threatening situation that you've got to keep being shut down. So the brain is going to lock you down, 
prevent you uh, moving towards your desired goals. So we have to reframe the understanding of pain with patients to get them, help them get better and help people to identify for themselves, ideally. And this is what we do on our combined psychological and physical activity. We, we show them how they can be experts themselves to look at what might be driving their own pain response, uh, making them fearful of moving and avoidant of moving because fear avoidant beliefs and behavior. That's the common. Uh, they have to be careful moving because it'll only get worse or the fear of a flare up. Or might be, if it's bad now, then heavens, if I carry on doing something, it'll only get worse. And this is fear avoidance, beliefs and behavior. And that, as we know, is keeping the fight, flight, freeze system running. Uh, it's keeping the uh, cortisol system running and, and will affect the immune system as well. We now know when it's a chronic phase, hyperexcitability. So the body is functioning in a hypervigilant state. And that's only going to go one direction, more tension, more sleep disturbance, more pain. Yes, this has been such a fantastic introduction, but we probably ought to pop through some of the questions. What impact can chronic or recurring pain have on our lives? Well, devastating for some people. Relationships change, where you earn your living, recreational interests, getting your needs met in a balanced way. Uh, It can really turn people's lives upside down when it gets going. So as we've just described, the sportsman who's Mm. no longer able to be part of the team or things like that. And um, what type of pain can be managed better or differently, perhaps with less use of pharmaceuticals? All types of pain. All pain is an output from the brain, and therefore it can be modified. And I mentioned, I gave an example of acute phase pain by reframing its protective response. Uh, All pain can be modified and turned down. Uh, It may be that there is some tissue damage and tissue destruction or an ongoing disease um, that you work with the medical management as appropriate. Anything you can do as a clinician or maybe as a therapist, a talking therapy, to help reduce the threat surrounding the situation, the brain will produce less pain. It will turn it down automatically. The person in pain doesn't have to go looking for the off switch. There isn't one. It will just turn it down. Less threat, less pain. So you can put in safety messages, helping needs get met, for example, helping to take some autonomy and control back of the situation is a very powerful human need that's often not met with chronic pain. I have, for example, using the metaphor of the bully, the pain. Uh, it sounds to me, Jane, that the pain now has become like a beast on your back, bullying you into how you're running your life, you know, taking your choices away from you. And she said, exactly, that's what it is. And the aim of treatment here is to put you back in charge of the pain, not the pain dictating how you run your life. That's a wonderful metaphor. Yes. Tame tame the beast or tame the bully. You don't tame a a bully by just trying to ignore it and run away from it. You have to be smarter than it. You have to understand its behavior. Why is it behaving like this? And modify your changes so that you're protecting yourself better. And this this is fundamental. So those metaphors are very powerful. One of the questions here is about a, a terminal cancer patient who's in pain. Would you say even in that situation you can dial down the pain? Yes, yes indeed, yes. If you've got terminal cancer and you may well have cancer disease, it's called metastatic disease, spread to the bone, for example. Yes. And destroying the tissues, either the organs, maybe the liver or the bowel, or sadly more commonly the bone. And that is actually acute phase pain because the tissues are being damaged. And the key phase pain responds extremely well to opioids. And as a doctor, I would never deny a patient in that situation the offer of opioids. And to escalate the dose, never, I, when I was a GP, I'd never had any compunction about escalating the dose to control the pain as far as is possible with opioids. And now the common practice is giving the autonomy to the patient to control the dosage. You don't have any worry about addiction here. Opioids work extremely well for acute phase pain. And then you can deal with some of the other aspects of pain, which may be uh, the distress, the fear of uh, fear of dying, the fear of the process of dying, fear of what will happen to your relatives uh, after you've gone. Fear of all these sort of things can be addressed with, with good care in a holistic way. And that will turn down the threat response. I think hospices are, are very good at this, the, the seem to be yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. within hospices yes, yes yes an example of care at its best uh, very often and it's not an either or it's not well let's use psychological methods and ignore the medical mm. uh, you want all the methods working together and that's what the hospices do very well indeed i had a, a client who had nerve pain in his shoulder had had actually had some nerve damage during an operation so of course there was some psychological stuff going on there as well because he felt mm. very cheated by this uh, operation having gone wrong 
But what I noticed, we did we did quite a lot of guided imagery, and as you say, that's so powerful metaphor. And uh, he found it best when we imagined a cold pack being on his shoulder. But I've also had people who like to have heat, to imagine heat. And I just wondered with that cold heat thing, what what's going on there? Is that just a personal thing? The, the opposite to nociception, that's the danger messages coming into the spinal cord, is there's a network of sensory neurons in the tissues that can dampen down the message at the spinal cord level. Um, and the most obvious example there is is the cold spray, injured footballer on the pitch and the cold spray, and then very quickly they get up and run around. So instantaneous chilling can, can give relief, and that's stimulating free nerve endings. And it can dampen down the amplification system in the spinal cord or the pain gate if you want to use that metaphor so that can work heat doesn't work very well in the acute phase the really acute injury of the tissues like a torn muscle or torn ankle ligaments and so on chilling works better when you're getting more into the chronic pain i think there isn't one size fits all some people find chilling maybe helps and some people find that warming helps and if you were a practitioner and thinking about using and had the skills to use guided imagery then of course you'd be trained to listen to the patient's metaphors that they use themselves and often the clue here is is to how they describe it so you ask the patient to describe or your client to describe what's that pain really feel like can you give it some texture can you give it some feeling for me to help you understand what it is you're experiencing and if they're using phrases like it's burning and red hot and poker like the obvious metaphor is the chilling metaphor and ice and cooling and so on. So you can be guided by the descriptive terms that they're using because there is no one size fits all. Yeah, yeah. Very much with that particular client, it used to be a burning sensation. Yeah, so you can do that in imagery, of course, and those of us trained to use it would use it. But also, you can just use it in, in normal cognitive language communication. And of course, we actually had cold packs available, so we were sort of doing so, yes. everything. And you know, it's a simple question. So, could you give me some idea of how you could cool this pain down from what is it today? Is it, say, and they say seven out of 10, where 10 is the worst? It's what would cool it down to, to turn the dial down to six or five even? I mean, what could you do? You're getting the person into their observing self then to look at a dial on a scale of one to ten. And that's very powerful to help a person get out of their emotional engagement with their symptoms and into their observing self. Is the, can you put it on a scale of one to ten? Here's a different aspect. When at work, I have a constant pain in my shoulders. And I wonder if this could be a side effect of stress or anxiety. So I suppose the overall question is, can pain be a side effect of mental health or mental health at work issues? Indeed. And I'd never be able to get to this depth uh, the first time I met somebody. But as I get to know people, and often through the functional restoration program, which is a 12 hours of contact with the team, it very often comes out that, for example, that heavy feeling across the shoulders, the neck and the shoulders weighed down. The metaphor they often use, you listen to the metaphors again. And if they're using metaphors like it feels like a heavy weight on my shoulders being weighed down and it's always worse at work. My thinking there is, is okay, on the balance of probability, this person's being put down, undermined at work, they're being perhaps being bullied, they're in a difficult relationship in that work situation and their brain is pattern matching to work and the person needs, therefore, the, the person needs more protection when they're in the work situation. Therefore, the brain is going to produce more pain. We see this time and time again. But the person in pain can't see that link. Yes. Until they get more into their observing self and calm down. And then it's very often, every program during our recovery program, there's a light bulb moment, we call them. It's so obvious now. It's that boss or that person in my workplace. I didn't appreciate the link until you've helped me to understand it. You know, I couldn't work out why it was worse on work days. Yes, tiredness and stress, generalized stress, can make anything worse, especially a pain. But the brain will pattern match to the environment. And if they've been quite traumatized by the experience, then we can often, and sometimes unwittingly, but we don't do this for voyeuristic reasons, but you can even just, when talking to a patient, just visualize, just close your eyes and visualize yourself walking into that office or that factory environment or that workplace. You're walking in there and what are you noticing now? And say, I can feel my pain coming on. So the brain is pattern matching to the environment and, and producing the pain. So if they really want to get to the roots of, the, of that pain, then we'd help them to work at that level and really find out what is going on here. It's making their brain produce this protective response. What do they need protecting from? It comes back to that yet again. Yes, so that's really interesting. That's using guided imagery to find yes. the source. So you can use guided imagery if you're working at a guided imagery level with a, with a client. Then, you know, you can use indirect methods, you don't, you know, without actually putting ideas into the person's mind, of course. You know, is just curious, exploring, inquisitive mindset. I wonder what the, that part of your brain is producing 
so much pain for that you need protecting from in this situation. Yeah. And once they once the person spots it, they get better. It's a light bulb moment, isn't it's it? It's a light bulb moment, and like we've seen in many other psychologically distressing situations, once the brain, the higher brain, makes sense of what's happening, then the perhaps all those neural networks between the thalamus and the higher brain, the traffic changes direction. The higher brain is, is dampening down the traffic from the thalamus and damping down the fight, flight, freeze system. We've, we've seen, we're trained in post-traumatic stress disorder, and I think it's the same sort of circuitry that's going on. Yes, and I always think it's a bit like looking at a piece of art, maybe, or listening to a joke. Once you've seen the other perspective, the other side, you can never unsee that again. You're, exactly. Your brain. Yes, exactly. You know, the, the work situation is, 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 it can be tricky to deal with, but once a person understands that, then you can just reframe it. Well, look, these are your options. Yes. <laughs> you can beef up your assertiveness skills and protect yourself and inoculate yourself and whatever metaphor you want to use and get a little bit of training perhaps to skill up on your assertiveness skills and learn how to relax and make your time for yourself and or you walk away <laughs> um go somewhere else but you can't change the perpetrator of the behavior we always cancel people that way it's impossible but then of course you get with working with chronic pain you make the, the trauma may go back a lot, lot further in life and we have to respect that because some people the way they've been brought up and Adverse childhood experiences particularly may have primed their brain to keep on protecting the way they were brought up and the threats they were exposed to as they were growing up. So they have a, their brains have a very, very low threshold for producing a, a fight, flight, freeze, anxiety, protective response and keeping them in a state of arousal much of the time. Yeah. And, so, um, so I suppose if they're having trouble with someone at work, that might actually be a pattern match in itself too. Exactly, my pattern match to something from the past. So uh, somebody trained in human givens model and working with a person, that's a fruitful area to explore gently. And if you've got a client ready to explore to that depth, you'd like you to have some success. The challenge with working with chronic pain is moving away from the damage and injury model, which is Absolutely. so, so yeah. pre prevalent. It's hardwired into people, it's hardwired into our society and, and sometimes you just can't move people away from that. Now, moving on to painkillers, here's a question. It's easy to purchase painkillers mm. and anti-inflammatory medications and all sorts over the counter. But can this cause more harm than good as we all get start to routinely sort of pop holes? And are we talking addiction here? And that's a really good question. And um, up until about 10 years ago, I used to think that the medications that people are commonly prescribed for helping with pain and persistent pain in particular, well, they're just not working. But actually, I've changed now, and I'm because of working with patients and what they're listening to the patients and what they're telling us, uh, listening to the patients, and we've audited our outcomes. And then the research is beginning to support this too, which is exciting, is that there's a reverse effect with many of these drugs. Oh. So the longer some of these medications are taken, the more they, they increase the sensitivity of the pain system. So they make pain worse. Oh my goodness. And this is relatively new information from research and it's particularly obvious in the opioids. So that's, for example, common codeine, cocodamol, dihydrocodeine, tramadol, and then morphine and the allies of morphine and going upwards. And these are all names that resonate with me in terms of addiction, I think, as well. Yes, they, so, they, so this is a conversation we have with patients when they're ready and when they come to the goal setting and what they want to change. Then many patients who really want to get better with our group recovery programme, coming off medication is one of their goals and we support them. So we actually actively help people to come off these drugs because they're not working. You really have to ask people, what difference is it making? They, they don't know. And most of them say, I don't think it helps, or they've just got into a habit of taking it. Mm -hmm. Or they're scared to stop in case the pain gets worse. Exactly. They're scared, they get scared to stop in case the pain gets worse. And they're on a repeat prescription. The general practitioners aren't trained to help people come off these drugs. It's so easy to start. It's so easy to keep them going. It's very difficult. It takes time. And you can't just withdraw these medications simply. Uh, so the way we work in our program is that as you're withdrawing something from the brain that it's got used to, and we use the term that these medications in some way hijack the brain's reward system. Now, we've heard this before in post-traumatic stress disorder and addiction, particularly addiction work in the human givens model. Anything that has the potential to make us feel better has the potential to hijack the brain's reward system. So I often find myself using the term like these medications subtly hijack the brain's reward system and fool us into believing they're working. I don't use the word addiction. I think that's a bit uncomfortable and threatening. Yeah. And, and it's not through the fault of the patients. Most of the patients we see are very conscientious types and they feel awful taking this stuff. They really are very pleased to have a conversation with a doctor in particular. It's doctors who prescribe these drugs 
that it's safe to withdraw from them and it will it will likely help them and give them a little bit of support as they withdraw very gradually tapering them off and as they taper something off they put something else in place so we teach them relaxation skills 7-eleven breathing setting goals for more pleasurable activity to reconnect themselves with things they've been missing getting needs met in in more meaningful ways hobbies interests craft work anything social phone a friend so they're starting to get the brain's reward system working with more meaningful tasks i think that's so key though to replace because otherwise, if you're withdrawing something, you're really looking at words again, aren't we? Yeah. Sense of withdrawal, denial. It's very, thre- it's very threatening to withdraw something that it feels, what's it like if you miss this medication for 24 hours? Oh, I feel my pain gets worse. It's terrible. So you know, that's, a, that's a sign of rebound and probably addiction or habituation. And so they're very terrified of withdrawing it. So you generally explained what might be going on here through no fault of their own it's the innate reward system that our brains have and it's hijacking that i I always emphasize that knowledge is incomplete but we're learning that these medications don't work for persistent pain at all well they only work short term in some people and the miracle is here that when you actually see the changes in people when they're coming off the medication, it is uh, phenomenal. Uh, we see it at every group program. During the four-week program, people coming off gabapentin, tramadol, codeine, some of the stronger opioids, um, their lights come on. They can think straight. Other people in the program say, gosh, they look so much younger. They, they, their eyes are brighter. They've got colour back in their cheeks again. They've, and their cognitive function improves. And from a human givens model, something I've observed is that they can focus attention better, which is... The, yes, they've got the, spirit the need, Yes, the need to, to give and receive attention is, is a human need. Now, many of these drugs very subtly cause cognitive impairment, and you listen to the patients on them, and they can't concentrate on things like a film or a book or a conversation, so they don't go out, they don't read anymore. The hobbies are things that give them reward. I didn't think it would happen until I saw it. The difference when they come off this stuff, that it's not treatment. It's only supposed to give them enough pain relief to get them moving. Um, it's not treating a disease. And, you know, they, they can focus attention. They get involved in things again. And often their depression lifts. It has to be seen to be believed. And this is one of the key reasons why the most effective approach from current knowledge is to have a team of clinicians. So have a medical guy like myself who can give authority to the patients to come off medication. And I would never recommend coming off medication if the patient didn't want to, or if it was necessary for managing a disease, Uh, for example, thyroxine replacement or a disease-modifying drug that a rheumatologist might be giving to keep the immune system in check in a disease like rheumatoid arthritis. And in a way, would you start, I would never withdraw those medications. That's disease-modifying drugs. But the common so-called painkillers, and that's another reframe we put in, we stop calling them painkillers because they don't kill pain, they kill the person. (laughs) As we know in the United States and and increasingly in the United Kingdom. What would you call them instead of painkillers? Analgesics to ease ease pain and improve comfort. And if they're not doing that, then don't take them (laughs) and give support to people while they come off them. So relaxation skills, cognitive techniques, behavioral techniques, physical activity, setting goals. All the things we know from our regard method and goal setting, getting needs met, getting people, helping people to get their needs met that way. So more, still on that question, really, more information about the -the over-the-counter stuff would be very useful, wouldn't it? And we also tell the patients that, you know, most of the drugs that are commonly used for analgesics are prescribed by doctors and doctors want to be helpful. And one of the few tools in the toolkit is the prescription. And so they're going to use that. But they are massively limited. They promise much, but actually deliver very little when it comes to chronic or persistent pain. How long would you say it takes someone to withdraw and have that moment when their eyes are brighter and they're taking more interest in the world? Well, with this approach, we've, we can see the difference within two weeks. And not necessarily, they don't have to necessarily have to come off completely the medication. You can see some dramatic changes in people when they're just coming off at maybe a quarter. Wow, that's the dose by 25 or 50% by maybe two weeks into the program if they've chosen to do it that way. And other people on the program, not medically trained, can see the difference. And they're moving better, feeling better. They might have some temporary withdrawal effects. And so I always just advise people to, to watch out for and how to deal with that and not to be frightened of it. And it will pass. What about something, a sort of pain that's recurring, but possibly not important enough to take to a doctor, like headaches? What would you say to somebody who's... Oh, we had a patient on the last programme we finished only two weeks ago, and she had a chronic headache problem for about 20 years. 
and she was habitually taking paracetamol around about six or eight a day. And there is some research being published that paracetamol has perpetuate headaches, and no doubt other analgesics can, but the research published was on paracetamol. So one of the conversations we had with the patient to help her get better was to come off the paracetamol, and she was actually quite anxious about it. She was feeling quite dependent on it, but the methods we've just discussed, we, we set her out, and she started to taper down. And we showed her some relaxation skills, 7-Eleven breathing and some physical activity. And the program runs um, three hours contact on two occasions over four weeks. And by the third week, she's completely finished with paracetamol uh, for the first time in about 20 years. And her headaches are gone. My goodness. Yeah, isn't that 20 a years of chronic headache and she's seen neurologists, various neurologists. She's been through, she's been to two pain management clinics elsewhere. And with this approach, just simply coming off paracetamol and showing her how to relax (laughs) and move comfortably and helping her to set some meaningful goals and moving the attention away from drugs, drugs and medical treatment. She's actually so much better. And by the end of the program, I mean, assertiveness skills were coming and she's like uh, other people on the program uh, saying that she's like somebody who's like a butterfly coming out of a chrysalis. She's just, and and then she told us, you know, she shared with her that her life had been really quite traumatized by bullying within the family and elsewhere so not surprisingly she'd had a tough time but she'd never been able to vocalize it all and she just um she just acknowledged it and just acknowledging it helps to close the brain activating circuits down that's huge as well and then i'm i'm also thinking with something like that that's been going on for 20 years she probably has stiff shoulders and neck because of just holding herself in a certain absolutely. way absolutely her shoulders the muscle tension was so so strong and so automatic that her shoulders were like sitting up around her ears when she started yeah. And she, in the end, she she was relaxed. Her shoulders were coming down. It looked like her arms went much longer. It's just automatic. We didn't stretch them. She just the brain is just not producing protective responses anymore. Yes, fantastic. And that's where physical movement. Mm. I know in myself. We helped it. We know we, we sent her around the gymnasium, walking with some dumbbells, just a yes. couple of kilograms in each hand. Just walk and let the, just gently swing, and that helps to relax. So all of this, and then we finish off with some relaxation and coming off the medication. It's all, it's all very simple. That's the beauty of the human givens model, isn't it? The penultimate question: Why are these skills and techniques not known by more oh, medical? Julie, I wish I could answer that simply. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I think we're, I think we've, sadly, we've got bogged down with a very narrow medical model, which works, of course, in many conditions as healthcare professionals. And maybe as a society, we've come to expect far too much from the medical model. So we know this in, on the spectrum of mental illness too. And certainly in my area of work with musculoskeletal conditions, there's far too much emphasis on what the specialists can do to fix things. And that's been a prevailing model for many decades. Uh, we're moving away from it gradually, but it's still prevalent. As the person at the other end of the medical treatment, we're taught to be a bit helpless about it, and it can't be as easy as just getting some exercise and talking. So, you know, no, that's right. Yes, if it was so easy, but we're we're changing behaviour, and it's a cognitive behavioural based program. So, example of that lady coming off medication, she's changing her behaviour. It's not just giving her information; she's changing her behaviour. Her relationship with taking pills and getting up in the morning to take a pill, and we're going to get through the day without a paracetamol. And she's broken that habit. So it's behaviour change as well as cognitive changes. And I would say that feeling of volition of, oh, I can do this. Yes, that's right. They're helping people gain a sense of autonomy and control back again of what they can control. And they can always control their breathing and relaxation. And coming back maybe full circle to where we started, when we review people at the end of the programme or people have been on the programme and write up a story for us, we can put on the internet or whatever. The one thing that they comment on time and time again is at the end of the first session that we, when we all came together on the first two-hour session, we get the mats out and we do some relaxation. Either myself or Abigail Darling, uh, who's a human givens therapist, shows them how to relax. And it's just never been shown this. So we did some cognitive work. We get meeting, break the ice. And then at the end, we actually relax. And we say, this is not just a jolly. This is actually retraining your your brain and it's rewiring itself this is active treatment and they love it and it makes a huge difference what <laughs> relaxation techniques do you use there is it is we use uh, what we're taught in the human givens training because we come back to it it's simple to teach seven in eleven out or five in eight out and as they're lying down they most people choose to have a lie down because they're a bit sore and aching in muscles maybe sitting up a bit uncomfortable so we just we, they just get the mats out and lie down around the gymnasium floor 
And so that, that facilitates abdominal breathing. So maybe you encourage people to just put their hand on their belly and just feel the belly gently rising as they're breathing, breathing and gently falling as they breathe out. And then do some counting. Maybe it's only 10 minutes, maybe just 15 minutes. Maybe just a very little bit of imagery. Um, but we don't do too much imagery to start. We always ask permission. We give them permission to engage with the imagery if they choose to, or they can ignore it if they choose to. And um, many people like that, but it's the relaxation that they find so helpful. And it's a skill they can take away and do tonight and do tomorrow. Exactly. And come back next week and say, gosh, you know, I'm sleeping better. I woke up in the night and I did this 7-Eleven stuff and I feel sleeping better. And I, you know, or when I felt the need to go and take that extra, you know, that tramadol again, you know, to get some sleep, I, I did some 7-Eleven breathing. And, you know, I didn't need a tramadol. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm. Oh, that's brilliant. It's, it's very exciting to be able to, to share these messages. And, and I must emphasize that it isn't just, I'm not the only one that's got, discovered this, and I'm not a guru. And the skills we've been talking about are transferable skills for those who clinicians have got the aptitude. And we've got several physiotherapists I work with in my hospital, the NHS hospital, who have developed these skills and got the aptitude, and they're getting the same results. So these are transferable skills because they are based on neuroscience, on based on research, on what we currently know. These are transferable skills for people who've just got an open mind and aptitude to learn them. And the other thing is that if a person is in pain, it's always modifiable. It may not be able to take it away completely. You can always turn it down. Well, thank you so much to Graham for covering this highly relevant topic. And I'm sure his knowledge and advice will have helped all our listeners today. It's been very, very interesting for me and a good reminder of that course I went on several years ago now. Now, if you would like to attend Graham's one-day workshop called Effective Pain Management, there's only one date remaining this year, which is on Thursday the 3rd of October in London. You can find that. We'll put the link with this podcast, I'm sure. But if you visit humangivens.com forward slash college or just call the Human Givens office, which is 01323 811 690. They will give you more information and book your place. It's an ideal workshop. I can't praise it highly enough. It's brilliant for all professionals, people working with people or anyone who suffers from pain themselves or knows someone who's suffering from pain. So we hope to see you there. Thank you for listening. If you think this podcast will be useful to anyone you know, do share it with them. And until next time, bye for now.